for the gospel reading from Matthew 5:38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me? May the words that I speak and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So I am a pretty crazy dog lover. Love dogs more than life itself. And we have a dear little rescue dog at our house named Trooper, with a U, because we kind of consider ourselves a comedy troupe, I guess. But Trooper has a problem with resentment. If there were a 12-step program for dogs, I would suggest that he go. About four years ago, my husband was walking Trooper down the driveway when the next-door neighbor's dog came flying around the corner of the house, growling menacingly and teeth bared. My husband and our next-door neighbor, who happens to be a friend of ours, broke them up and there was no harm done, at least no physical harm. But for Trooper, that became a defining moment mentally. Now, the slightest noise from next door sends him into an absolute tizzy. We have to be very careful when we're all out together in the backyard because when the neighbor dog comes out, Trooper is ready to rush the fence and fight. If it weren't so annoying, I would find it rather laughable, particularly when Trooper stands by the window and makes these weird whiny noises, kind of like a little kid, saying, Mommy, that dog is out again. He's a bad dog. He started it. Poor Trooper. He is stuck in the past, obsessing over something that happened years ago but is still very much alive for him in the present moment. I often wonder if God sent this quirky dog to be my teacher. His obsession with the dog who first went after him has forced me to ask myself where I'm still stuck in fear and aggression from offenses long past. I've been forced to think about the ways I hang on to stories of rejection and pain. Do you remember Richard Nixon's enemies list? Well, I have to laugh whenever I catch myself making a mental list of people whose behaviors run the gamut from mildly annoying to seriously harmful. And if I'm being rigorously honest, I must admit to sometimes having thoughts that seem to arise out of nowhere thoughts about the ways I would love to deal with certain people. 
Am I alone? I don't think so. I've listened to enough confessions over the years to know that we're all, not all that different from Trooper when it comes to getting stuck in our hearts and in our minds about the wrongs that have been done to us. Sure, we all tend to react in slightly different ways, but as far as our basic human wiring goes, most all of us have painful memories that can stir up feelings of hostility and aggression if we let them. I'm fascinated by Tim Mishney, the personal injury lawyer who bellows his famous tagline. Oh, you are also clearly aware of Tim. How could you not be in Cleveland? He's everywhere. He's on the TV stations, he's on YouTube, he's on the buses that go by with that tagline, I'll make them pay. And when I see him or hear him, I stop and I think about the people for whom he's won settlements, and I wonder if those settlements have righted the wrongs they suffered. I wonder if it's brought peace and healing to those victims. Now, I have to give this guy his props. He has created an incredible brand, a marketing strategy that's hard to ignore. He has tapped into our culture's fascination, obsession with rage and with pain. And he's created a very profitable niche out of getting settlements for people who have felt victimized. Now, hear me clearly. There is absolutely a need and a time and a place for restorative justice. I'm not talking about that here. What I'm talking about is the tone of Tim Mishney's trademark. I'll make them pay. Every time I hear it, I feel disturbed. Now, as we think about the scripture that Lucy just read, I want to encourage us to all just stop and take a deep breath. Jesus' words could not be any farther from an I'll make them pay way of life. His teaching in today's lesson is one that flies in the face of any attempt to exact punishment or revenge for wrongs that have been done to us. I'll tell you what, when Jesus said this to his disciples, or to the crowd even, that was gathered around him, I am fairly confident that he blew their minds. Because the law of the day, the law in not only Israel, but the whole ancient world was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In Hebrew scriptures, it's known as lex talionis, and you can find it in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And while this law of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth may sound cruel or primitive, it was actually intended to set a limit on revenge. Once a person got the tooth back for the tooth that was taken from them, the case was closed. No brooding, no plotting, no vendettas. Done. So you see, Jesus 
really turned things on, his, on their heads. He turned the law of the day on its head when he encouraged people to go beyond it, to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. But is that always possible? In his book, The Sermon on the Mount, Inspiring the Moral Imagination, New Testament scholar and professor at Princeton Seminary, Dale Allison, points out that Jesus isn't necessarily doling out one-size-fits-all prescriptions. There are times when non-resistance is not appropriate, particularly when vulnerable members of the community are being threatened. And it's not appropriate when it's born out of passivity that is really kind of indifferent or lazy. Professor Allison wants us to see that we can't blanketly apply this teaching, but rather need to see it as part and parcel of the whole Sermon on the Mount, which is really the description of a holistic way of life embodied by Jesus and taught by Jesus, a way of life characterized by mercy, peace, and love in which an eye for an eye just doesn't fit. It simply cannot be the tagline for Jesus' followers. Another great biblical scholar, Walter Wink has given us a fascinating perspective on the whole idea of turning the cheek. Dr. Wink was a professor at Union Seminary and a Methodist pastor who taught that Jesus was speaking in this passage to people living under the oppressive rule of Rome. Now, I'm not sure if we can all imagine what life was like back then, particularly for Jews living under Ro Roman occupation. Some of us may be better able to imagine that than others based on our life experiences. But to suffice it to say that life in ancient Rome was brutal. Jesus was speaking to people who were constantly being kept down, constantly being told in word and in deed that they had no value. I'm going to need a volunteer now to help with a demonstration of what Dr. Wink taught. So, all right, so Lucy's going to help me demonstrate what Dr. Wink taught. He says, if somebody hits you on the right cheek, so she's going to turn her right cheek toward me, but here's the thing. I am not able to use my left hand because the left hand in ancient times was considered the unclean hand. You know all the ritual purity laws? This was the hand that did the dirty work. So you didn't use this hand. You could even get in trouble for gesturing with this hand. So we're taking this hand out of play. I can only use my right hand. So if I'm going to strike Lucy, and I promise I won't. If I'm going to strike Lucy on the right cheek, I'm going to have to do it backhanded. I, there's no other way for me to reach that right cheek. I'm going to give her a backhanded slap. What is a backhanded slap? Particularly in the ancient world, it was the sign of domination. It was the sign of a superior to an inferior. 
at least someone who considered themselves superior to someone else. So it was the slave master to the slave. It was the man to the woman. It was the adult to the child. It was anyone who thought that they had a superior position and the person beneath them was really of no account. It was a message that said, you don't count. You are nothing, this backhanded slap. So that's really what Jesus is talking about when he talks about being hit on the right cheek because this is the only way I could do it. So then he says, if that happens to you and you are hurt and abused and dominated in that way, don't run away, turn the other cheek. So she's going to give me her left cheek. Now, I, I can't really backhand her this way. The only way I could make contact is with an open hand this way. And this is the symbol of contact between equals. So by turning that cheek, this person is no longer a victim, but is saying, I am your equal. I will not be demeaned by you. Thanks, Lucy. So that's Jesus' message. You are somebody. You cannot be degraded. You cannot be demeaned. You have worth. You have God-given dignity, no matter how people may treat you on the outside. And this became the basis for Mahatma Gandhi's um, nonviolent resistance work that revolutionized the country of India. And then, in turn, became the basis for Dr. King's revolutionary work here in the United States. Every human life is worthy of honor in the eyes of God, no matter how much the forces of evil may try to say otherwise. So now let's circle back to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I have to tell you that I'm not so worried about any of us here gouging each other's eyes out or knocking each other's teeth down their throats. I'm more concerned about subtle ways that we try to pay people back. Subtle forms of violence. The cold, silent treatment, for example. That's a, a means of retaliation in which you shun someone. You do not give them the opportunity to engage with you, to have any kind of closure with you. You simply shut them out. And what it is, is silence as violence. And I've seen this in my practice of counseling. It causes enormous psychological and spiritual damage. And then there's gossip, which is a form of character assassination. So somebody does you dirty, and what do, what do we do? We go to other people and we say, you know, he's no good. You know what he did? And we try to get people on our side. Now I'm going to ask you, you don't have to answer it now, but I'm going to ask you to meditate on it this week. Can you think of other subtle ways you might be tempted to react to a person who's hurt you or who you think might hurt you? What other subtle ways might you be hurtful in reaction? 
If we're being honest with ourselves, all this talk of non-retaliation and non-resistance and peacemaking is way easier said than done. Some of us have suffered great injuries, some of them that go back a long, long way. Jesus' teaching doesn't always feel so comforting to us then, and having to let go of fantasies, of paybacks, or any thoughts of aggression can feel as if we are being called to scale Mount Everest. Even when we hear about the negative effects of resentment on our health, and, and there are many, depression, anxiety, cardiological problems, gastrointestinal problems, problems in relationships. Even when we hear about all of those negative consequences of hanging on to resentment, it's so hard for us to get to that peaceful place to which God in Christ is calling us. The culture in which we're living is of absolutely no help at this point. Everywhere we turn, we're overwhelmed with images of aggressive, vengeful, petty behavior, sometimes from the highest offices of our nation. How in the world will we ever follow Jesus in the path of peace? The other night, I was reeling from shockingly hurtful behavior on the part of someone close to me. I was beside myself. I was full of confusion and pain and rage. I tossed and turned for hours that night until I finally got up and made my way into our prayer room and tr Trooper came trailing behind me and snuggled up next to me, a very warm comfort in that cold, dark room. At first, I just sat there in my prayer chair, pouring out my complaints to God. God, what is happening? How could that person do that to me? How will I let go of this darkness that is inside me? How am I ever going to get up in front of the congregation and preach a sermon with integrity? about how we need to let go of paybacks and how we need to show love when we're so hurt and angry. Suddenly, Trooper, my teacher, nuzzled up close to me and groaning slightly rolled over on his back, asking for a tummy rub. Now, tummy rubs, you should know, are serious business with this dog. They are one of the few ways we can calm down his high-strung temperament. But you should also know, and you may know this if you're a dog lover, that tummy rubs in dog language are the ultimate symbol of surrender. When a dog does this, the jugular is exposed, the whole front side of the body is vulnerable. And as I gently rubbed his belly, I began to laugh, and it was holy laughter. Watching Trooper surrender to my loving touch, I realized that only in total surrender to God would I have any hope of not striking back, of being able to be the person God created me to be. Trooper is able to submit to my husband and me because he knows how much we love him. Could I do any less with God? 
Responding to hurt nonviolently with love and grace is a really tall order, and there are times when we feel completely incapable of that kind of a response. But you know, when Trooper flopped over in submission, I flopped over too. Maybe not physically, but in my spirit. And in that moment, I felt God assuring me that I was so greatly loved and I could be set free from the bondage to bitterness. But I had a role to play. I was responsible for choosing to remember my identity as God's beloved child. I was responsible for remembering that God created me to grow more and more like him every day, to live differently than this world does, and to trust in his grace and power to do for me what I could not do for myself. Every single one of us in this room is passionately loved by God. Every one of us in this room is a beloved child of God. And in that identity, we have everything we need. We have a sense of belonging. We have the power to overcome great personal and communal challenges. We have a constantly renewing capacity for love and for peace that the world cannot and will not give us. As we seek to follow Jesus, to participate in his life of healing and justice and peace, we can only do so to the extent that we remember who and whose we are. So friends, that's our charge. Let's encourage one another to remember who and whose we are by deepening our practices of prayer and study and gathering together for spiritual growth. Let's encourage one another to act in this world as people who are unconditionally loved by God. And hard though it may be for our stubborn egos, let's work on surrendering our lives and will to God every day so that we can continue to grow into the people we've always been meant to be. Thanks be to God, who will surely do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Amen.